Hi, welcome to Taiwan Talk. I'm Alex Lewis. This week, I talked to Michael Berube, who is a professor of literature at Penn State University in the United States. He's worked there for 17 years, and, and also the University of Illinois for 12. Before that, he's a literature professor, but he has contributed to the field of disability studies since the 1990s. I'll let him explain why he became disinterested in the field. In the interview, he came to Taiwan for two weeks in mid-May to give lectures around the island on disability, and he was gracious enough to come into the ICRT studios to speak to me about the subject. I'm here because Mary Goodwin of National Taiwan uh, Normal University invited me. At first, I thought she was inviting me uh, to teach a course. So I wasn't really sure how long I could be here. And she said, no, it's not a course. It's a series of lectures. So we picked out this two-week period. Uh, I arrived on May 8th and uh, be staying through. This is my final day of lectures. And she told me that there isn't a lot of disability studies going on in uh, Taiwanese universities. So could I bring some lectures uh, about my work in disability studies and about the state of the field generally? So I worked up some things uh, from my uh, two most recent books. And then she also asked me to write uh, a fresh lecture just um, for anyone who's interested on the invention of disability in the 19th century. And then today I also talk about the state of the humanities in North American academia. So so it's pretty much a grab bag, but I'd say you know, of the six lectures I'm doing, five have to do with disability in literature, philosophy, or history. And what drew you to study disability? Uh, the birth of my son uh, in 1991. I have uh, two children. Nick was born in 1986. Uh, he was a sort of traditionally gifted child, uh, the kind of academic, you know, they're, they're called you know, <clears throat> faculty brats, the kind of kids who by the age of five, you know, uh, know how to go to cocktail parties and you know, have a ginger ale with a napkin and chat about each other's work over hors d'oeuvres. And then in 1991, his brother, Jamie, was born, and uh, we did not know that Jamie would have Down syndrome. We did no prenatal testing. We were not interested in prenatal testing, but you know, feel free to ask about that because that's an issue. But uh, we, just, we found out that he had Down syndrome the day he was born, and we really didn't know what that meant. And <clears throat> I immediately started researching it. Uh, what else, right? We're academics. I wound up four years later uh, writing a book about Jamie called Life as We Know It. And in that book, I tell the story of, you know, Janet and I, you know, we're trying to figure out what this all meant. And a, a nurse comes in to check on us. And she leaves behind her notes inadvertently. And we pick them up and uh, we see <clears throat> parents seem to be intellectualizing. Like, that's good. Yeah, that's what, that's right. right. That's what yeah. we do, right? Yeah. So I started researching the history of Down syndrome. Not only – not the history, but also what it is. It's a, it's a chromosomal non-disjunction non that results in a person having three 21st chromosomes instead of two. And the extra genetic material basically creates a cellular confusion. So there's – it's some developmental issues. They uh, – people with Down syndrome generally have low muscle tone. Uh, they have slightly different facial features. They actually – when this syndrome was named by J. Langdon Down in 1866, he called it mongolism because people – People with Down syndrome have epicanthal folds in the eyes that looked to European eyes like uh, oriental features. Um, but there is actually no connection whatsoever to Mongolian anything, and no one uses that term any longer. And um, for his first year, he was uh, pretty precarious. Um, 
He had some health issues. He did not have uh, – some children have heart defects. He did not. But after a year, it was uh, p- pretty much uh, the, the truism that a baby with Down syndrome is a baby first. And then it became clear that he was really a delightful and, and uh, fun-loving and really warm and, and, and easy child to take care of. So <clears throat> now he's 26. And in those 26 years, I started you know, with the uh, history and – biochemistry of Down syndrome, and then started getting interested in intellectual disability more generally, and then disability, and then things really started to expand from there. Uh, but I have to say, when I was writing my book about him, I didn't know I was contributing to an academic field. It didn't exist yet. And uh, now it does. Now it's, it's, it's thriving, and um, there's all kinds of interesting work being done in something called disability studies. Mm, okay. Uh, could you define disability for me? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll start where... Th- the disability rights movement started, and then I'll explain why we're not there anymore. Mm-hmm. The definition I'm about to give you is largely created by people with physical impairments. So disability generally falls into really three categories, physical disabilities, intellectual or cognitive disabilities, and then psychosocial disabilities, which we used to call mental illness, but mental illness is really a rotten term, not not only that it's stigmatizing, it's just not accurate. You know, it's not like your brain is sick right. and, uh, and needs medicine. Um, so where the disability rights movement started was with people with physical disabilities deciding that their physical disabilities were not disabling. Those were called impairments. Disable, uh, uh, disability had to do with the fact that there were no access ramps, and there were no curb cuts, there were no kneeling buses. And so the argument was, we're not disabled. Society disables us. And this is why we need political and social and cultural accommodations. Mm-hmm. That was an enormously successful argument. It got you know, disability access uh, accommodations in many, many countries. But you can see it's not entirely adequate because it doesn't really cover intellectual and psychosocial disabilities. Right. You can't really argue that people with intellectual and psychosocial disabilities are uh, impaired only by society. It's both, right? It's cultural and it's biological. But what the disability rights movement wanted to get away from was the idea that disability is just an individual matter requiring you know, a cure or remediation. They wanted to move away from what they called the medical model to the social model. And that was also very enormously influential and a good move to make because so much of what makes disability disability is the social fabric of our lives. Mm. Um, and this is true also of people with some psychosocial disabilities. Think of people with anxiety disorder, right? Or think of people who, with what used to be called schizophrenia, uh, for that matter, people with autism. Uh, a lot of that has to do with how they behave socially. So it's not just a matter of individual impairment. But that was what got things started, the distinction between impairment and disability. Now that line is a good deal blurrier. Yeah. And um, as for a blanket definition of disability, it, it really is um, – it's hard to come by because it covers, you know, thousands and thousands of different kinds of conditions. Mm-hmm. But I think the Americans with Disabilities Act uh, defines it as uh, involving um, an impairment that involves, you know, one or more life functions. And that, too, is a, is a slippery definition. For example, I'm about to put on my reading glasses. At one point in a Supreme Court case... Uh, the late Antonin Scalia took off his reading glasses and said, are you telling me by your reading of the statute that I have a disability? And if I had been the attorney arguing that case, I would have said, yeah, right, right now in terms of I can't read that sheet in front of me. Mm-hmm. I could have done it 
until the age of 47. Now I cannot. This is a mild and easily correctable disability. It all depends on context, right? right? For most things, you know, um, think of all the times also, this is a broader principle, there are a lot of times where it's no disability to be deaf. And sometimes it's actually preferable. Yeah, if you don't want to be hearing jackhammers. Mm. Or if you're in a college like Gallaudet University or in a, a social situation like that of Martha's Vineyard where there are a lot of deaf uh, uh, speakers of sign language. No disability at all. It's then, so there's sometimes deaf people consider themselves a linguistic minority rather than uh, a category of disability. So it really is quite um, – the, the ground is always shifting under our feet. I, yeah. I don't have a blanket definition. Right. I just like have a, 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 a couple of arguments about why we don't have a blanket definition. I think Taiwan is a compassionate, inclusive culture, especially when compared to other Asian countries. I asked Professor Berube about that culture of compassion, whether or not he noticed it as well, probably most visible in Taiwan's public transportation, which was built with accessibility in mind and priority seating rules taken very, very seriously. Well, I'm uh, hesitant to say anything in a blanket way because I don't want to be the guy who shows up from the states and after nine days, you know, right. does the diagnosis in the entire country. But I think you're you're right about the the culture of compassion. I've experienced it myself. The the, the also the culture of hospitality. And I'd add also, it's not specific to Taiwan. It's you know a lot of um, East Asian cultures. The vener uh, the, the veneration of the elderly that too plays into. Uh, an environment in which you know ordinary disability and you know bodily infirmity is accommodated and and um, and not stigmatized. I notice also uh, bo both times I've taken the high speed rail, uh, one to Taichung and the one to um, uh, Kaohsiung. Mm. Uh, both times there were uh, wheelchair users uh, on the train. And I noticed that, that the accommodations, again, this is a very recently built uh, facility, right? They're all um, uh, very clearly built with accommodation in mind. I spoke to a person, a, a colleague of mine, a professor at uh, Sun Yat-sen uh, National University, who is also a wheelchair user. And so, she said, yeah, no, the public accommodations are quite good. Um, it's a more mixed bag with regard to everything else. And then when you factor in intellectual disability, that I really can't say. I, I'm, I'm struck by the fact that even though the, the accommodations are, are very good and public space is available, I've seen relatively few people with disabilities um, in, in, on the streets and, and, and on, out and about. And I really don't know what the status is uh, of intellectual disability. I had been reading on my way over here, um, uh, I was thinking of, uh, in, in regard to something else, uh, the, the lack of you know, um, schools for children with special needs in Seoul in, in, in South Korea. And I don't know whether the situation is the same here. Um, but it's really, uh, I think it's, it's, there are very hopeful signs and there are other signs, you know, and also my reports from, from my colleagues that things are some, somehow uh, also more of a mixed bag in some ways. At the very beginning of the interview that the professor that is hosting you here at NTNU, Mary, she, uh, she said that there's not a lot of disability research going on here right. in Taiwan. How about just Asia as a whole? Yeah, I would say this almost uh, globally. Um, so when, when you talk about disability research, 
I want to make clear that you know uh, I'm I'm still a literature professor, and what I've been doing is mostly both in my lectures here and in my work is uh, mostly bringing the study of disability to bear on the humanities, where it really didn't exist until you know twenty thirty years ago, which is weird, right? Because um, once you start looking around for images and, and representations and meditations on disability, they go back as as long as humans do, right? So <clears throat> everything from you know the ancient uh, peoples of the Near East to the Greeks to medieval Europe, you know, all over the place, it's, there's always been people with disabilities and different ways of thinking about disability. So it's a little strange that it'd be such a late arrival in the humanities. And that late arrival, you know, this was really, um, you know, in, in the UK, the disability rights movement, these uh, and the beginnings of disability studies, are really uh, they date from the 80s. The um, movement in the United States famously began at Berkeley with a group called the Rolling Quads, who wanted admission to Berkeley. They were perfectly capable of being college students; they just didn't have physical access. And that was the late 60s, but. Um, it didn't – really, it didn't take uh, – it took almost the late 80s, early, mid-90s for it to become an academic field. And so what Mary was telling me is, is it's not here yet. There's not – there are people – of course, there are accommodations of people for people with disabilities. There's disability policy. But it's not an academic subject in this way. Hmm. And – uh, again, in that regard, Taiwan is not alone in a lot of East Asia. Uh, uh, for that matter, I would say the same of uh, pretty much, uh, I would say, South Asia. Um, I, I know this is true in, in uh, um, Sub-Saharan Africa and for that matter, North Africa. Um, and I don't know as much of, uh, about Latin America. But it, it's really not – disability studies has really so far been largely an English language affair. So the UK, US, some extent Australia and maybe some of Western Europe. Um, Julia Kristeva in France, for example, has written very uh, you know, eloquently and beautifully on, on disability. But um, it, it, it's funny that, that uh, it, it also depends on how the humanities are configured differently around the globe. What the humanities are differs from place to place, and the North American model doesn't you know, always transpose uh, neatly onto East Asia or South Asia, for that matter. So... Uh, I think Mary's goal was to have me uh, come and give some examples. Um, the two books I mentioned, one is called The Secret Life of Stories, and that's Disability and Literary Criticism. And that, that's a book I've been working on for about 10 years, and it was published in early 2016. The other book uh, is called Life as Jamie Knows It, and it's a follow-up. It's a sequel to the 1996 book, Life as We Know It, mm -hmm. uh, now, now that Jamie's an adult. He's capable. He knows perfectly well there's a book about him. He, he thinks – at one point he asked if he was a celebrity. He asked me on a, a Facebook chat the other day if the Taiwanese people know about him. And I said, I'm working on it. You know? <laughs> uh, he has the, – the last radio interview I did was tandem with him. Mm. So uh, he helped me with the book. I mean he doesn't write narratives. He – makes lists. That's the way he thinks. And his lists are extraordinary. He, If he were here, he would be writing down on a legal pad the 67 counties in Pennsylvania in alphabetical order by memory. He's also got that kind of memory. Mm -hmm. So with this book, uh, I what I did was I read it to him at night. It was our bedtime reading. And anything he didn't want me to talk about, I took out. Anything he wanted me to put in, I put in. And some at one point, he actually challenged my uh, the, the actual words. I was using. He, he he asked me not to describe him as muttering, and I thought, you know, 
do you think that makes you sound like you know a crabby old man? He, he says, no, I just wasn't muttering. Mm. So I brought some uh, – that book also deals with things like the question of, you know, could Down syndrome be cured and what I want it to be? Uh, by the way, no and no. Spoiler alert. Mm. And then the question of, you know, quality of life considerations for people with disabilities. So I gave a talk uh, at Academia Sinica on Tuesday that was very much uh, hardcore bioethics. You know, I started engaging with the work of bioethicists who I think are profoundly wrong about such things. Uh, I sometimes call it bioethics, too important to be left to bioethicists. And um, how, are they, how are they profoundly wrong? Well, you know, there's a, a very fascinating book by Jonathan Glover called Choosing Children, Genes, Disability, and Design. A very good book, a very sensible book. But um, And it tries to incorporate uh, thinking about disability into thinking about what constitutes the good life. But the baseline assumption throughout, and this is a quote, is that disability has been contrasted in this book with human flourishing. Now, flourishing, this is a little tricky, flourishing is different from happiness because people can be happy and be totally fooled. Right? This is one of the uh, lessons of, say, Brave New World, that people are zonked on Soma and they don't know that they're slaves, right? For that matter, uh, this is also going on in Harry Potter, right? The house elves are happy being slaves except the one free elf, Dobby. So happiness is not a good criterion. Ha people can be happy while in fact being arguably objectively oppressed. Flourishing is allegedly a more objective measure. It's like do you have freedom of movement? Do you have a fulfilling job? Do you have friends? Do you enjoy music? The things that make you know, life worth living. And it's really a mistake to think that disability is always opposed to that. Sometimes it is. I mean, you got to admit that. Sometimes, especially if it involves chronic pain, I mean, people with seizure disorders or people with severe psychosocial disabilities who really do suffer, sometimes that's a contrast with flourishing. But a lot of times it's not. And, you know, Jamie, he's right on the cusp of being able to be uh, gainfully employed. He has a job with the Penn State Press Friday mornings, 9 to 1, doing inventory. But otherwise, he's working at a, at a sheltered workshop, and his life could be better in that respect. But it's just a mistake to assume from the outset that disability is, is inimical to flourishing. The mm -hmm. other mistake Glover makes, and this is really a big one. This takes us into real – this takes us into basically things I've been talking about for the two weeks here. Um, he makes the analogy uh, between uh, disability and uh, – selecting against disability, say in prenatal screening, doesn't necessarily mean that you want the world to be free of disabilities. Uh, and he takes his analogy to, say, cancer. We want to defeat cancer not because we hate cancers, people with cancer, but, but, but because we, you know, cancer ends people's lives. And at that point, I, I'm amazed. I mean, you, the analogy is between disability and fatal illness. That's a mistake. Disability is not disease. And that's, that goes back to the medical model. If you think of disability as disease, you will want to cure it. You right. will want to give people with uh, deaf people cochlear implants, whether they want them or not. You will go around thinking about curing Down syndrome instead of coming up with a world in which people with Down syndrome can lead fulfilling lives. So that for me uh, is a really – I call that a category error. It's a philosophical category error. Mm. But it's more complicated than that too because some disabilities have their origins in disease. Some diseases are disabling, right? Mm -hmm. and, but some are not. And some disabilities, like if, if I came in here you know, having uh, lost half a limb, that has nothing to do with disease. That's, you know, that's just ordinary disability. So that's the argument with bioethicists that you know, when, they, when they think of you know, how to allocate resources and how you know, quality of life things, they 
almost always set disability at a discount and they almost mm-hmm. always think of it in, in the most dire and, and debilitating terms and they don't think of um, uh, disability as something just quite ordinary that can be factored into the mix. Mm-hmm. One other thing, and I f- forgot to mention this when you asked about a definition, um, we really have to distinguish between acquired and congenital disability because if you're born with a disability, I think of the, uh, the scholar Tom Shakespeare He's related to that Shakespeare, uh, dis- distant descendant of, of William Shakespeare. Uh, he's a disability scholar in the UK and he has a chondroplasia. He is uh, short of stature with a sort of large you know, forehead. And he said, I was born this way. I've never known life other than this. It's fine. It's not an issue. However, later in life, he also became paraplegic. And that, he says, is a different matter. I didn't want more disabilities. Right mm-hmm. Now we're talking about something that's you know debilitating. Mm-hmm. So – um, I think when a lot of people, let's say like you and me, when we, if we think about disability, it would be acquired. It would be you know, something happens to us and we would lose functions that we now have. I think that's the way too many people think about it. Um, for someone like Jamie who's leading a very happy life, not just happy, uh, sorry, flourishing life. And I do check on this all the time to see how he's doing. Um, being born with Down syndrome uh, was not a big thing at all. It's just an, you know we we treated it as ordinary intra-species variation. Um, it does prevent him from doing some things. He's not as good with abstract thought. He uh, he will need someone to manage his money, things like that. But in terms of his enjoyment of life, the, the fact that he now is a total culture vulture who ranges from you know. Suggesting we go to mostly Mozart concerts, or when we went to Florence, he suggested we go to the muse- the famous museum, the Uffizi, and he also likes death metal. Yeah, you know, which I mean, he gets has all these CDs that involve you know skulls and and, and crosses and stuff like that. So yeah, um, uh, that's what I'm basically here to to convey the, the sense that you know disability studies is not just the study of individual disabilities or individuals with disabilities, but ways of thinking about human variation in terms of history, philosophy, and literature. It's opening the mind and opening uh, the definition. Um, so, what's the ultimate goal when it comes to disability? You know, this is World just peace. yeah, <laughs> right, of course. But it is like you know, just like what is the what do you think is the correct mindset to approach this with, and what's the correct mindset that people need to kind of adopt? That's a very, very good question. I usually, um, I usually don't go around telling people, uh, but, but now I will. Um, no, I think, uh, again, the question really is how to think about intra-species difference. We have um, a variety of – we have a lexicon now, right, of diversity, race, gender, class, sexuality. And I, often people forget that disability is one of those factors and, in fact, that it will play very interestingly and complexly with those other factors. So, you know, being disability and being gay being, – having a disability and being gay, especially if one has an invisible disability, can be very, very interesting mm. because, again, also if one is not uh, visibly uh, and legibly gay, you have really complex politics of disclosure of – Again, this goes back to the, the question of the social fabric about what you disclose about your personal life and under what terms. And uh, I'm thinking here of a really fascinating essay by a friend and colleague, uh, Ellen Samuels, um, who, has, uh, who has an invisible disability. And one of the ways that's an issue, especially with regard to law and policy, is that you always have to prove that you really are disabled so people don't think you're Cheating, or cutting to, or using those priority seats, or or, or cutting to the front of the line, and uh, that requires that that also takes its toll, right? Um, but my sense is, um, I, I think of um, 
I'm going to go back to Tom Shakespeare. He wrote something in response to something I had written in which he said, um, I think we need to disaggregate disability a little. And I think he's entirely right. He thought he was arguing with me. He wasn't. He was, I couldn't agree more because there are you know, some conditions that are really, really quite severe and do limit people's mobility, their social opportunities and everything. Other things, he says, hardly matter at all, like deafness, dwarfism, or Down syndrome. And I said, that's it. That's the whole enchilada. That's all I want. That's, that's all I want is for people to think of those conditions, which some people think of as horrible. You know, just you know, I can't imagine having a child with Down syndrome. Mm-hmm. I would never, never. I couldn't even imagine being deaf. You know, dwarfism must be you know a blight. Um, mm-hmm. And for a guy like Tom Shakespeare, like no, that's minor. <laughs> Those are minor variations. That's not something really debilitating. It's not something that necessarily shortens or worsens your life. Um, and to think of, uh, I'd like you know people to think of um, forms of disability. Again, not in terms of things that are wrong with individuals, but as, as parts of the social fabric that we can accommodate and actually learn from. That this is as valuable a form of diversity as any other. And mm. so whether it's you know national origin diversity, race and gender and sexuality diversity, um, people with disabilities will bring a perspective to bear on the public on public life and on the social world that we may not have heard. Uh, and I like to think of it this way especially in democratic societies, that so much of the deliberation of what democracy is and what democratic procedures are had been going on until the 60s without people with disabilities. It was like we all had a disability building with no ramp. And now um, now people come along and say, look, you know – First, physical disabilities, and then intellectual and psychosocial disabilities. We really have to uh, have a. We really have to figure out what is the best way to accommodate and work with people um, of uh, as diverse backgrounds as possible. So that's really the the uh, the message. And then I have a narrower message as well as a professor of literature and a literary critic that we have been underreading disability in literature. That it's much more ubiquitous and much more interesting than most people have thought. Uh, so my takeaway from that is that it's not inherently negative right. disabilities. And two, you want it to, you want this to be added to the intersectionality argument. Exactly. Right? It's, it's part of the fabric of life. In fact, there's a last couple of years, um, a lot of really interesting work on disability and intersectionality from both ends, right? From, from the sort of influence by Kimberly Crenshaw, intersectionality theorists, and then also disability uh, theorists thinking, you know what? It's not just disability. It's disability and everything else, right? It's all the axes at once. Mm-hmm. So during his time in Taiwan, which was May 8th to May 21st of uh, 2018, this uh, this May, uh, he came to Taiwan to give lectures at the National Tengxing University in Taizong. And he talked about disability and narrative, disability as a motive. Uh, he talked at Tonghai University and talked about disability and narrative self-awareness. Uh, his next lecture was at the National Tengxia University, and he talked about the invention of disability in the 19th century. He spoke at the Academia Sinica and talked about disability studies and the meaning of life. He also spoke at the National Sun Yat-sen University and talked about disability and narrative, disability as a motive once again. And lastly, he spoke at National Taiwan Normal University, and he spoke on the humanities and the advancement of knowledge. And I wanted to ask him, what did his audience think of the talks? 
uh, pretty well. Um, I'm always not the, uh, the best gauge of that because um, uh, I have to go pretty much by the, the, the Q&A period and my feedback from hosts. And because hosts are so gracious, um, uh, I, 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 think, I think they've gone well. Um, okay. But it's been a very mixed um, uh, array of audiences. So, for example, at... Um, at Tonghai University, um, a really pretty complicated lecture on uh, self-reflexivity in fiction, you know, sort of metafiction and disability, that was to a class of undergraduates. And the way the professor had prepared them for that is to give them some idea of what's going on with Don Quixote. Ah. Right. So that – good. That was the platform I needed and then I explained, you know, uh, I'm basically redescribing Don Quixote. We all know he's a crazy old coot who, you know, tilts at windmills and pretends they're giants or thinks they are. Mm-hmm. And um, – uh, but there's another way to describe him is as a person with a disability that prevents him from understanding what fiction is. So the fictions he, th- he reads he thinks are true histories that need to be revived now. And what's interesting about that is that uh, – I'm not sure how many people know this. In book two of Don Quixote – Everyone has read book one. It's very postmodern in that way. Mm -hmm. And they decided to uh, humor him by creating the world he thinks he lives in. That's really interesting. That means his disability, uh, his inability to distinguish fiction from from history, warps his world so that he actually becomes – he winds up living in the world he thinks he's living in. So that uh, uh, lecture went pretty – that was the toughest one because that was uh, to undergraduates who – with no background in disability. Um, the talk at Academia Sinica was very different. It was mainly all the faculty, and they they uh, they dug in where the ice was thickest. You know, they they asked some really searching questions about. In fact, not unlike the question you asked about bioethicists. And then um, uh, yesterday at um, uh, National Sun Yat-sen uh, University, um, that too was a class of of uh, literature students who were unfamiliar with studying disability in literature. So I actually uh, changed my lecture from the prepared thing and decided I'm going to teach a class instead. I'll I'll explain where my book came from and how I wound up making the arguments I do and why they are different from previous arguments in in the field of literature. So it's really been all over the map. It's been, you know, really hardcore, you know, uh, faculty and researchers to uh, undergraduates and sometimes undergraduates and graduate students, all of whom, though, were new to the field. Professor Berbay gave a TEDx talk in 2010 on the topic of the portrayal of disability in popular media. It's a thought-provoking lecture, and I recommend you to check it out. And as I watch a good amount of movies and binge Netflix like it's my second job, I wanted to follow up with him on this topic to see if there were any more important portrayals of disability in media since the 2010 talk, how the portrayal has progressed, his thoughts on the matter, etc., etc. You told me before uh, we started this interview that you're going to go see Deadpool two in theaters. Uh, yes. I remember in Deadpool one there was um, there was a blind lady in the in the. I haven't uh, seen it. I, uh, I oh no, I, don't I have know. to catch up. Also, you know, I I still haven't seen uh, Avengers: Infinity War, mm-hmm. but. Um, I do. I was really uh, touched and, and, and flattered to see how many people, in, in preparation for my visit here, had watched my TED talk. You know, it wasn't a TED talk. It was, yeah, there are TEDx, TEDx talks, right? TEDx talk, yeah. And uh, it was at Penn State. Yeah, 2010. 2010. Yeah. Uh, 800 people there. It was a. It was quite a crowd. Mm-hmm. And I gave this little talk about how you know th- there's disability in, in places you don't expect to see it, especially in science fiction and various kinds of fantastic genres, uh, Disney movies like mm-hmm. Dumbo. Happy Feet and Finding yeah. Nemo. In media, in, in popular media. Absolutely. And yeah. I have one uh, follow-up on that. Um, so in that talk, I mean, first of all, I, I, 
I thought it was pretty clear the X Men are, are imagined as people with right. disabilities, mm-hmm. even though they have superpowers. It's a yeah. really interesting An inverted uh, take, sort of, if you will. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And uh, you know, to some people who are very literal about disability, it's kind of offensive because, of course, people with disabilities don't have superpowers. Except that once you start thinking about it, and this is one of the reasons autism is so fascinating to people these days, is that um, there are uh, uh, attributes of autism that are hyper abilities. And I think of you know Jamie's ability to catalog and remember information. He also has like internal GPS. He has extraordinary uh, ways of, of, of perceiving and, and apprehending his world that exceed mine. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so I think it's really kind of fascinating that superhero movies and science fiction you know, and, f- and fantasy genres uh, uh, meditate on these things. And I don't find anything offensive about it at all. I find it really fascinating ways of thinking about the way the world could be otherwise. Mm-hmm. So when I said you know, uh, in that talk that you know, Finding Nemo was all about disability, you had every major character has a disability. You know, Little Nemo, he can't go in the open ocean because he has a disabled small fin. His father is traumatized and deeply neurotic and won't let him out of his sight because his wife was eaten in the first minute of the movie and Dory has short-term memory loss. Um, so that her and the longer she stays in the narrative, she says at one point, the, the more I hang out, the more I stay with you, the more I remember. So the narrative sort of cures her inability or uh, uh, helps her inability to understand narrative. When I said that, the entire auditorium laughed. I said, no, no, seriously. I promise you, they, they discussed this on the storyboards you know, around the Disney studios. Well, I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Two, three years later, the writer of Finding Nemo gives a TED Talk. I was totally right. Yeah. He says basically exactly that. This is mm-hmm. what we were trying to do with these various forms of disability in this movie. So, yeah, I mean – it's 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 fascinating that um, you know, people read these um, moments of popular culture in terms of you know all kinds of meditations on difference and the difficulty of you know um, moving from adolescence to adulthood because the X Men of course acquire their their powers in, uh, in in their teenage years and there's so much young adult fiction that's about that as well about you know entering this bewildering world that the adults have made and it turns out that. Uh, one of the things that people have been underreading for many, many years is the the role that disability plays in those narratives. Right. Well, I, I think it's not very. Um, it's kind of inherent in the story, and it's like it's not like it's like they kind of hit you over the head with it. Like right. this is about yeah. disability. They didn't. Kinda, they didn't lay it on top. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, how has that? Uh, how has the portrayal of disability evolved since your 2010 TED Talk? Do you feel like hmm. or TEDx talks? Do you think it's um, gotten better, worse, or you know, any insights in that? Well, I think people are. Uh, I think the people who are doing, who are writing these uh, scripts and um, coming up with these various, you know, either fanciful or, or hopeful or whatever um, meditations on disability. Uh, it's funny. It's like it's like it's like that TED talk. Uh, the the uh, script writer, gave, screenwriter gave, trying to make it more explicit. If you didn't get it the first time. Right, so Finding Nemo was one thing, and the, the sequel, Finding Dory, is much more explicit about disability. So mm-hmm. there's no question that this is front and center. So it's sort of less woven into the story, as, as you mentioned, and more hitting you over the head because you didn't get it the first time. I think the same thing happened um, with X-Men. X-Men 3 uh, involves – and th- again, this is already about you know, 15 years ago or something. Mm-hmm. But X-Men 3 took the premise of, of the X-Men and offered them a cure. Like would they – you know, if they, if they could, right. could they you know, rejoin humans and not be mutants? 
Mm-hmm. And that's very much a question about you know uh, curing a species intraspecies difference. The other example I'd point to is a little more controversial. Uh, the, the movies of the Farrelly brothers, which are usually considered pretty low comedy, since they, their first big hit I think was Dumb and Dumber. Mm. Um, and then you know Shallow Hal, which was about obesity and and weight and and, and fat shaming, and, and then uh, Stuck on You with conjoined twins. Mm-hmm. Um, after a while, I thought you know what. Um, these people are actually exploring disability, and you know it, this is really tricky because we don't know really yet what disability comedy consists of, um, mm. which is a whole issue in, in and of itself, right? And uh, here they are trying to make comedies about uh, the foibles, not of people with disabilities, but of the normate world of all the able-bodied people that they have to deal with. I just put this up on a blog. I had a blog for uh, six years or so. It was pretty widely read. It had eight, 9,000 readers a day. And when I mentioned this about the Farrelly brothers, I immediately uh, the next day got an email from New York Magazine film critic David Edelstein who said – you're the only other person who gets this. I've been mm-hmm. saying for years the Farrelly brothers are exploring disability and, and tolerance and diversity and inclusion, and everyone thinks they're just goofballs. And right. I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, yeah. So, so we, yeah, we correspond now. <laughs> but I'm glad, I'm glad someone saw that. Yeah, okay. And do you think that um, – I, I don't think I've seen any of those movies. But uh, a lot of, I feel like a lot of movies uh, where the disability is like plays like front and center, there's like at the very end there's this overcoming – Right, of the disability, right. right? Do you feel like that's problematic? And it is. That? That, uh, that's uh, actually the subject of a book by David Mitchell and Sharon Snyder called Narrative Prosthesis. Mm-hmm. It was published in 2000 and it is far and away the most influential book in the field. And my own um, recent book, Secret Life of Stories, is a kind of response to it because they're not wrong. That happens a great deal. Their argument is that disability comes in as a sort of uh, pl- you know interesting plot element uh, because it always involves a story. How did you get that way? Oh, a white whale ate my leg, you know, something like that. Um, and then it's effaced. Or it is just rendered metaphorical. It's not really taken on its own terms. And they're right. And that, that happens especially in, in Disney movies. Uh, Dumbo is my favorite example because Dumbo is mocked and reviled. Uh, his mother is mocked for this, this, having this baby with these crazy big ears. And it turns out he's the, the, the elephant who saves the circus because he, he can fly. His ears are so big he's actually aerodynamic. Mm. So there, he, it doesn't, it's not a disability anymore. It's a, it's a super ability. And so that does happen, or there's an overcoming narrative, you know, despite this, this person overcomes their obstacles. And sometimes we call that inspiration porn. Uh, Mm. It's pretty prevalent, I think, all around the world. Um, Sometimes because people with disabilities do do extraordinary things. And, Mm. you know, uh, Helen Keller, for example, is in some ways the the greatest super crip ever who uh, overcame real uh, uh, obstacles early in her life, especially the assumption that she was uh, ineducable. Uh, And she was actually brilliant, right? And she also had a, a... terrifyingly good memory um, for, 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 for everything, even for, for uh, things that she had read you know, as, as a very young child. So yeah, the temptation is overwhelming to end on a happy note, right? To uh, say, you know, despite all this, you know, life goes on or this is fixable. Mm-hmm. And uh, what I see is um, a, a more, uh, both in popular culture and in literature, uh, readiness for more complicated narratives mm. that don't always end um, with the effacement of, of disability or with its uh, or with that you know narrative prosthesis where it is made to disappear um, so my argument with my in my book with 
Mitchell and Snyder's book is that they're right about a lot of narratives, but not all of them. And there are a lot of other things that uh, writers and, and uh, artists do with disability that don't involve overcoming, that don't involve making it um, – uh, sending it off into the margins or, or uh, making it disappear altogether. Okay. And a final question. Um, so what are some ways that people can be more mindful or aware of disabilities within society? Uh, like kind of like when uh, your son Jamie was born and you kind of like intellectualized and yeah. read upon it and became more aware of, you know, your surrounding world and the culture and stuff. Like what can some people do? to achieve some, I don't know, to see some awareness. Yeah, it's a fascinating thing um, because, you know, before Jamie was born, right, I knew that there was a disability. I tried to be mindful of people who were wheelchair users, you know, whether they wanted assistance with the door or whether they didn't. Um, and there's also a, a very sort of a delicate politics. and it, It's negotiated differently in every culture, right, of how to acknowledge a disability that's visible, right, mm. because you don't. You don't want to stare, and you also don't want to look away. It's not, so what I do is I try to acknowledge. Like I'm just giving you an eye uh, gesture here, just you know, taking slight, in slight right? head nod, right? slight yeah. head nod. And if there is, uh, for example, uh, I did this with a with a cashier who had uh, one uh, hook for an arm. I mean, a hook in place of an arm. So it made uh, it took her a little longer to make change. <clears throat> this is not really a problem. And so just a, a, a nice acknowledgement. But the funny thing for me is that, you know, uh, so many – for so many people, it doesn't really hit home until it's a family member. And then you realize, oh, my goodness, of course. Of course this is all around the world. Of course this is millions more people than I thought. And uh, then you – it would be nice if people didn't have to have a family member with a disability to realize that. So the idea really is to look around. Uh, to try to be mindful of uh, not only the people you see, but sometimes try to be mindful of the people you don't see. Try to be mindful of the fact that you know people who have either mobility impairments or intellectual disabilities may not have access to you know uh, social goods and public life the way you do. And think about what it would mean to incorporate them more fully into the fabric of everyday daily life. Thank you to Professor Michael Barabay for coming on the show. Thank you to Mary Goodwin for arranging the interview. And thank you for listening. If you like this offering, please check out the Taiwan Talks of Old for talks on different topics. And if you'd like in-depth conversation and analysis of news developments from and about Taiwan, go over to Taiwan This Week. They cover all the biggest Taiwan developments one week at a time. Thanks for listening. I'm Alex Lewis.